from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 12th. Today, the past and future of Hollywood's love affair with law enforcement and the symbolism of clothes on Capitol Hill this week. You've probably gotten emails from every business you've ever given your email to letting you know that they think Black Lives Matter. But unlike, say, Alice's Teacup in New York, which sent me one of those emails, the entertainment industry actually has something immediately within their purview that they can do if they want to change the conversation around policing in America. Being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. Hey, mother... What's my name? What's my name? What's up, Joe? What? You, you pulling a gun on me? You guys are cops! And that is take a pause, look at the cop shows and the police movies that they produce and see if the messages they're sending align with their stated values. My name is Alyssa Rosenberg. I write about the intersection of culture and politics for the Washington Post opinion section. And in 2016, I wrote a five part series on the history of pop culture's cops. And there are a lot of them. And so you're basically calling for, like, all these shows that are on TV right now, like Law & Order and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And, I mean, there's, like, cop shows on every single channel that the executives for the networks and the showrunners, that they should actually stop filming those shows. It sounds like an audacious proposal, but because of the COVID-19 pandemic, almost no Hollywood production is actually underway in the sense that almost no one is on set or on a soundstage actually shooting television and movies right now. So this is something that might have been a really costly ask in normal times. I mean, I would understand if a network or a showrunner said, are you insane? Do you know how much it costs me to stop production on an episode, keep everyone employed while they're not working so we can have a focus group? But at a moment when the work that is being done on most shows and movies consists of writer's room has having Zoom calls, there has never been a lower cost or more opportune time for the people who make this particular species of popular culture to say, look, we're saying this stuff publicly, is what we're putting on screen in accordance with our values? And if not, do we want to do anything about it? So just for context, like how popular are TV shows and movies about police? They are really popular. If you look at NBC's lineup, Dick Wolf Chicago shows, which are set in a sort of shared universe and are about the police, uh, fire and EMS, and hospital workers in Chicago, are a night of primetime programming. You know, that's 20% of the network's programming, and that doesn't even count the Law and Order franchise. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups the police who investigate crime. And the district attorneys who so, I mean, this is one of the most enduring genres in American popular culture. It's never really waned, and it's going pretty strong today. Did you watch any of these TV shows growing up, these cop shows? I grew up in a house largely without exposure to pop culture. Um, I think we got a TV for the first time in 1992 when my parents wanted to watch the Bush-Clinton presidential debates. And 
It wasn't till I graduated from college that I had my own TV and I had cable for the first time. And I was living in DC. I'd just gone through your totally standard post-college breakup. I had two friends. I was broke and I was lonely. And so I watched basically nothing but Law & Order um, (laughs) reruns for a year. I would come home from work and watch three or four hours of them on TNT. Because they're always on. Well, exactly. And so that was in some ways my formative experience as a television watcher. Mm. And I was having it at 21, not at five or 10 or even 15. I I think I've mentioned this on the podcast like three times before, but my dad is obsessed with Law & Order. I grew up watching Law & Order. I mean, I'd come home from school and be doing homework and Law & Order would just be on in the background because it's on for like four hours every night. And it's just how I frankly like understood the criminal justice system. And, you know, I would say I... I love cop stories. You know, they're dramatically perfect. Hmm. Um, The commission of a crime gives you stakes. The investigation of crime gives you action. And then solving crime gives you an incredibly morally satisfying conclusion. I mean, they're just perfect story engines, but they're not politically neutral ones Mm -hmm. either. And the thing is, we're not the first generation to be shaped by cop stories like this. So how far back do cop stories go? If you go back to Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, who are the two giants of the American silent film era, they are making cop stories. They're making cop stories that look very different from the ones that we watch today. Keaton, in particular, made a number of short films in which he plays characters who end up on the wrong side of the law um, and in one case is literally unjustly killed by the police because of a misunderstanding. So these stories have always been here, and we're in sort of our second century of cop stories in America, I would say. Mm. But as long as there have been cop stories, there have been sort of a push and pull between the entertainment industry and police departments themselves. Tell me more about that. So if you go back to 1908, there is this big moment when George McClellan Jr., who's the mayor of New York City, shuts down the city's movie theaters. He has police officers go in and close them because they're sort of palaces of vice. And the police are, in a number of cities, are concerned about the way that they're portrayed in pop culture. And in 1910, the International Association of Chiefs of Police adopts a resolution condemning the movie business as a whole Hmm. because the police are sometimes made to appear ridiculous (laughs) in the stories that pop culture is putting out. And so you have this early debate. And then in 1915, the Supreme Court rules that movies are not protected by the First Amendment. And I know that's something that's incredibly weird to think about today. Like We all, I think, accept at this point that, you know, movies and TV are protected modes of expression. But for 37 years, people who were making movies and eventually television and radio didn't necessarily have the protection of the First Amendment. Huh. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to work with that knowledge that your speech is not considered protected, that the police can come shut down your movie theater, and that the organization of police chiefs says that you're doing something immoral and potentially dangerous. There's no way that doesn't shape the stories that people decide to tell. Yeah. How how is that reflected in the early years of what we saw of like 
police dramas? So there is this figure who I think most of us would not necessarily be familiar today, but he's kind of the original genius of police storytelling. And his name is Jack Webb. And he had this sort of genius idea to go partner with the LAPD. And Webb was smart enough to essentially make them a proposal. He said, I will tell your stories. You can literally censor the episodes. The story you are about to see is true. But I get to sell my show as the authentic depiction of what's happening in the LAPD. And also, frankly, he got loans of equipment. He got off-duty officers who would act as extras. And it made um, shooting Dragnet cheaper and easier for him. And the LAPD's public information office literally got to sign off on the scripts. So there was something of like a symbiotic relationship in which this film company was was able to say, look, like here are real stories of police officers or this is a, a true exciting depiction of, of the adventures of police. And then the police had the censorship privileges that made sure that this came out in a good light for them. And it wasn't just the LAPD. I mean, the head of the California Highway Patrol, Bernard Caldwell, goes to his PR guy and says, you know, get us a show like Dragnet. I want something like that. It's good for me. It's good for recruitment. And they get it. There's actually a show called Highway Patrol. Whenever the laws of any state are broken, a duly authorized organization swings into action. It may be called the state police, state troopers, militia, the rangers, or the highway patrol. These are the stories. But this was, I mean, beyond the point at which the First Amendment has been reapplied to police storytelling. But there are advantages to both partners in making this an actual partnership. I mean, if you can get your permits greased so you can shoot on location, if you can get a bunch of equipment that will mean that you don't have to go out and like paint, you know, rent or paint cop cars. So I want to fast forward to the 80s and the war on drugs. And how did we start seeing that play out on screen? Because I'm thinking back to, to the movies that I would remember that are 80s movies of, about police, and there are a lot of them. The drug war is awesome for Hollywood cop stories because it lets them compete in an era when action movies are ascendant. And fighting the drug war is sort of a perfect action movie story, right? I mean, you have crimes that are more heinous than a burglary or a mugging and that also theoretically have, you know, this sort of cancerous effect on society. You have uh, a set of criminals who tend to be depicted as foreign, as unusually bloodthirsty. As I say, take your hands out of your pockets. Sure thing, pal. Let her go now or we all die. Take him. He has a grenade. You know, they're not citizens in the same way. And I'm using that term broadly. It's not just that, you know, they are, for the most part, not depicted as Americans, but they're depicted as people who sort of live outside the normal realm of morality. Which I think is what makes a, a show like Miami Vice so compelling, right? Is that it's it's international. You have people coming in and out from all over. and But also it means that because they are not American and because they've chosen to live outside of society, the use of really dramatic force against them becomes justified in the narrative. Hmm. So... The drug war both became a real-world argument for beefing up the firepower and the surveillance equipment that police departments had. And on screen, it becomes an excuse to turn cops from, you know, sort of doughy middle-aged guys like Jack Webb who are wandering around a neighborhood in a squad car into jacked, awesome action heroes. Mm. 
And you can have those huge chase scenes where your cars are speeding down highways. You can have you big can explosions. Up. How do I know these are going to go bang? You worried about that? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable concern. You can have, you know, these incredible gun battles and you can do all of that without people saying, what is going on? I mean, we wouldn't want the police to police us us like that. But the whole point is that they're not policing you like that. Mm. They're policing drug dealers from X, Y or Z country who are coming here to, you know, corrupt our kids and kill our kids with overdoses. And, you know, I mean, it becomes this sort of amped up us versus them morality play which again is what action stories do very well. Um, you know, when I was looking at, I, did, I built a database of police shootings in pop culture, not a complete one, but just to sort of see some patterns. Like just any scene where a police officer shot someone else or was shot at? What, usually when they were shooting at someone mm-hmm. else. But if you go back to Dragnet, I mean, you know, you have in the episode The Big Thief, you have Joe Friday sort of beating himself up over having to shoot someone. And the whole episode is literally set up to convince him that, no, he's done the right thing. You really had to kill that guy. First time I ever killed a man. Mm-hmm. What a good thing, Ann. You kind of wonder if maybe there wasn't some other way. Was there? No. The third episode of Naked City literally has a woman who has been widowed by the police tell the officer who shot her husband. You know, you're okay. I can see it. You're sorry for what you did. Peter was never sorry for anything. Don't feel sorry about Pete, Mr. Halloran. He wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth it? Believe me, I know. Right? I mean, it's literally everyone is sort of put on the side of even the people who have lost their family members to police shootings in pop culture tell the cops over and over again that, I mean, actually, my son, my husband, etc., sort of had it coming. It's happened in Starsky and Hutch, where one of the characters shoots a 13-year-old black boy. Hey, he's just a kid. You killed a kid. It's Lonnie. He killed Lonnie Craig. The boy was trying to surrender. I saw him. He had put his arms up. And his mom is like, well, I I saw where he was going. I know what my boy had become. A mother loves her child and cares for her child and mourns for her child. But a mother knows what her son is. I mean, that stuff is crazy. Well, well, I also want to talk a little bit more about those scenes that you compiled, because I think that that is really insightful in terms of our understanding of what it looks like when a police officer kills someone. I think that when you see those scenes in movies, they tend to be scenes where you have a real sense that the police officer knows what he or she is doing, that they are incredibly great marksmen, that that they can reliably shoot at who they intend to shoot at in the way that they intend to shoot at them, and that these are very thoughtful decisions that are playing out generally in the right way in front of a camera. And that that just 
creates this alternate narrative from reality, which is that usually when these things happen, they're totally chaotic and police often don't know who they're shooting at or why or how. Yeah. And there's a real tension between the story that pop culture tells and the actual legal standard that governs whether a police shooting is justified. And I mean, the that standard is something known as objective reasonableness. It's would another cop have shot someone in the same circumstances? Like, is your level of fear sort of reasonable? And yet what pop culture shows over and over again is that, you know, there isn't fear involved. There's only calculation. There's only excellent aim. And that shows up in everything from Fargo, where you have Marge Gunderson, you know, she's on the ice, she's heavily pregnant, and yet she's able to sort of aim with this deadly accuracy. It's it's low-key like an amazing scene. Yeah. I mean, you see this in the final sequence in Hot Fuzz, which is a comedy, but a comedy about how awesome cop action movies are, where the main character manages to sort of call his shots in a way that allows him to disable but not actually kill any of the homicidal English villagers that he's going after. You know, it's really interesting that this ostensibly liberal industry has set up this just totally fictional sense of how these shootings work. And, you know, initially they did it on behalf of the police, like the shootings on Dragnet and Adam 12, the officers were always really in control. They felt remorse about it, but they were always justified. And when I've been thinking about these shows over time, you know, I think the depiction of the police in pop culture is both a subsidy for the police and, you know, tough for people who want to criticize the profession. But ultimately, it's also kind of bad for the police, too, because this is a standard that no human being can possibly meet Mm -hmm. consistently that is counter to the legal standards that govern whether their conduct is justified. And it's just, it sets up a collision between fantasy and reality, which is now documented in real time by people with camera phones, that is unsustainable. And If it's not sustainable in the streets, it may not be sustainable on screens. When you look at the current landscape of movies and television shows that feature police, do you see an evolution in that? Or do you see narratives that are more fair or more acknowledging the problems that people experience with police in real life? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the great things about the last 15 years of 15, 20 years, the entertainment industry is that as audiences have fragmented, you have shows that are just very different from previous entrants in the genre that have been able to stay alive for four or five or eight seasons, uh, telling a different kind of story that maybe doesn't have the same kind of mass appeal. And, you know, the cop show that everyone talks about is The Wire. I actually left it out of my most recent column just because the, the the sort of chorus of reply guys being like, well, what about The Wire whenever you talk about police culture is just exhausting. <laughs> because The Wire depicts corruption within a police department. And you would say that many of the good, the quote unquote, good characters are. I think that what The Wire does that is interesting is that it treats the police as a bureaucracy among many bureaucracies, mm-hmm. many of which are affected by the same problems, the same inability to change, and vulnerable to the same kinds of sclerosis and corruption. And I think police departments have often been treated as sort of sacrosanct and distinct. And what Simon, David Simon, who created The Wire, did in that show is said that the police are an organization like anyone else. 
Look, I'm just sorry I brought this whole mess up to begin with, because frankly, no one's going to do about it anyhow. Whoever killed him wanted to pass it off as a suicide, but cops are happy enough to have one less murder to investigate. On top of that, the Anne Arundel State's attorney doesn't give a f I'm not supposed to give a f so I guess your son just got squeezed between the sides. And that some of the bad guys are police officers and that some of the good guys are the people who are arrested. Not, not that there are good or I think it's David Simon and so they're not really good or bad <laughs> characters, but people who you tend right. to empathize more with. And it's not just that. It's that, you know, putting on a badge doesn't transform you into a superior species of human. Mm-hmm. Police officers can be defined by self-interest and bureaucratic infighting and family ties just as much as anybody else. He gave them back their humanity in a lot of ways um, in a cultural environment that insists on deifying them, sometimes to their detriment. But but that's still just like one show, right? I, f- I feel like I wouldn't say that the sensibilities of The Wire are really reflected in all these other cop shows that we see on TV to this day. No, I mean, I think the most sort of interesting mainstream kind of counterexample to that is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's created as this half-hour police comedy, and there have not been a lot of police comedies, in part because crime is serious. But Dan Gore, who worked on Parks and Recreation, um, created this show set in Brooklyn, sort of initially with the sense that a like hipster Brooklyn would be a place where there was a certain amount of ridiculousness that you could translate into a cop story without losing the thread about the seriousness of crime and the importance of the work. Love the first walkthrough of a crime scene. It's kind of like arriving at summer camp, except the lake is full of blood and your bunkmate is dead. I think I might be bad at metaphors. So after Adams comes home from work, the only person who even approaches his doorway is this delivery guy? Yeah, but he never enters the apartment. Hey, Rosa, check it out. Triple digis. There's so much evidence we hit triple digis. Cool. Cool indeed. But you know what's not cool? Our Vic ordered his dinner from House of Lettuce. There's no way this guy knew he was going to die. No one would want lettuce as their last meal. But... The show has been really serious and interested in a lot of ways about the identity politics of police departments and about that push and pull between the appeal of the action cop model and what's actually required by the job, which, you know, and to do policing well requires the ability to get through a lot of boring stuff, the ability to talk to people. Interpersonal relationships. Yeah, community relations, the ability to be patient. It requires a level of procedural correctness that is rarely translated particularly well into drama. And I really haven't spoken to Gore in a while, certainly not since the current upheaval, but that he and the cast of the show donated $100,000 to the National Bail Fund, said that they were in accord with the protesters. And I feel for them to a certain extent because, you know, when I was initially writing this series in 2016, you know, they were ahead of the conversation in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, But they were also, there were things that the format of the show didn't allow them to do, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lighthearted comedy. You're meant to be fond of the characters. And I think that this is a difficult moment for reformist shows because, you know, when I spoke to Gore for this series, he talked about wanting this, wanting Brooklyn Nine-Nine to be a model for what policing can look like. Mm. But, if you put forward a model of what things can be... That is not accurate to what things are. Or where it starts to feel like it's not accurate to what things can become, that utopianism kind of curdles into something mm. indigestible. 
So what do you think is the answer here? Like when, when you talk about oh, having these TV shows all take a pause and take stock of what images they're actually putting out into the world, is the answer to that we should be providing a, a better model for what cops could be, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Is the answer to that we should be more reflecting the realities of what people experience at the hands of cops, which is often uh, violence and unfairness and brutality? Or is the answer that like we shouldn't be telling cop stories at all, or at least we shouldn't be telling stories that are from the perspective of cops? So, and just beyond the question of the dramatic perfection of cop stories, you know, policing is important. Crime has a real impact on people's lives and how it's addressed by the police is both narratively interesting and sort of morally important. I don't want cop shows to go away, but they've been telling the same stories for almost 100 years, in part because those were the stories they had to tell to be on the air. And I think if we're in an environment where there is more narrative space uh, where audiences are willing to accept different kinds of stories and in fact maybe crave something different from the police, then this is a moment when innovation is really possible. You know, I think about something like Netflix's Unbelievable, which was adapted from a really, really amazing reported story about a young woman who was actually pursued um, on charges that she had made a false report of sexual assault when in fact... Uh, if the police had taken her seriously, they might have caught a serial rapist earlier. And so the show is balanced in a way that few cop stories are between the victim and the police officers. It's also balanced between officers on different sides of a debate about how policing is supposed to work and, you know, what people know and understand about rape cases. And so the answer doesn't have to be that there are no cop stories or no stories from cops' perspectives, but one thing to do could be to give victims more weight in the storytelling. You could do more shows about how hard it is to solve crime. I mean, one of the core assumptions, and it's a core assumption because it's a good dramatic value about police storytelling is that cops solve almost all of the cases that come before them, but that's just not true. Almost 40% of murders in the United States are not cleared. That number gets worse if you look at rape. It gets worse if you look at property crime. And I think that not requiring cops to be action heroes, not requiring them to be perfect, but allowing them to be human and allowing them to be in a complicated dynamic with their communities could be really valuable both for audiences and for the police. I think one of the things that people have said repeatedly during this moment of reckoning is that we ask the police to do too much. And... I think it would be worthwhile to look at the full range of what the police do and telling stories about sort of the totality of the job and what it's like to do it, what it's like to seek help from the police and not get it, what it's like to be a cop and get a case that you can't solve. I think those are all valuable stories. And I think that they're ones that the American public seems to have some hunger for. So I hope someone decides to take the risk and tell them. Alyssa Rosenberg writes about the intersection of culture and politics for the Washington Post's opinion section. By the way, you might be interested to know that after we taped this conversation, there was actually a pretty major development. The reality TV show Cops has been canceled after 30 years on the air. 
Another police reality show called Live PD has also been canceled. And in making that decision, network executives at a put out a statement acknowledging that, quote, this is a critical time in our nation's history. They went on to say that, quote, going forward, we will determine if there is a clear pathway to tell the stories of both the community and the police officers whose role is to serve them. And now, one more thing about the symbolism of clothing this week on Capitol Hill. Good morning, everyone. The Justice and Policing Act establishes a bold, transformative vision of policing in America. Congressional Democrats on Monday had a press conference to discuss legislation that would reform policing on a national level. I'm Robin Gavon, and I'm a staff writer and a fashion critic. In advance of that, they all wore pente cloth stoles, and they also knelt for eight minutes and 46 seconds. You know, it was an incredibly visual moment. But it did not necessarily, I think, come across the way that they intended. The kente cloth is uh, a textile that originated in Ghana. In the U.S., it has been embraced by some African Americans as an expression of their culture. And so the kente cloth misfired because the image of the legislators in the kente cloth was divorced from information about the bill that they were introducing. And the connection that they were trying to make between a legacy of slavery and the current policing system was lost. Many of us had the privilege last year of going to Ghana to observe the 400th anniversary going across the Atlantic. It was a horrible... I I do think that the decision to wear it came from a place of earnest solidarity. But the use of the kente cloth suggested that really it's only African-Americans who should be thankful for or supportive of this legislation when in fact everyone should, every human should. The House Committee on the Judiciary will come to order. Well, Wednesday morning, Philonis Floyd came to Capitol Hill to testify at a hearing about police reform and racial profiling. Thank you for the invitation here today to talk about my big brother, George. The world knows him as George, but I called him Perry. Yesterday, we laid him to rest. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I'm the big brother now. He really talked about his brother, but also the pain of having watched 
a video of his brother dying. I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother, who you looked up to your whole entire life, die, die begging for his mom. I'm here to ask you to make it stop. One of the most striking things for me was that he arrived wearing a suit, but without a tie. And that was notable because during his remarks at the funeral service, he talked about how he'd been unable to shake his brother, saying, I can't breathe, and that he had been unable to wear a tie. Enough is enough. There were also moments when you could hear one hand sort of gently pounding into the other hand. The right thing. The people elected you to speak for them. That was as physical as he got because there was the danger that he would be reduced to a quote unquote angry black man. I didn't get the chance to say goodbye to Perry while he was here. I was robbed of that. It's almost in those quiet moments of just a man being a man, it cuts through the grandstanding and it really gets to the heart of it all, which is that, you know, people just want to be seen as valuable individuals. Robin Gavon is a fashion critic for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svarnovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.